All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Chat for God podcast, the best podcast in the world for people like us. The two of us in particular. Yeah. <laughs> really just the best podcast in the world for Justin and Marin. Yeah. And for all the other people who are, you know, like us, who are more or less Christians, but, uh, you know, can't really relate to any of the, any of the other Christian quote unquote content out there. Not a fan of Joel Osteen. Not a fan of the top 10, you know, Christian podcasts on iTunes. And maybe you don't even know what you really think. Uh, that's kind of what we're what we're best at, maybe. So welcome back, everyone. Thank you for coming to hang out. As always, Chat for God podcast. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe and click the little bell so you know every time we go live. And yeah, also download it on your phone so you can listen to it later at your convenience. And if you would be so kind, leave a review on iTunes. It's still a new podcast, so getting reviews really helps uh, bump it up in the in the search results for people so it helps other people find it. So yeah, if you like what we're doing, leave a review. And most importantly, the best reason to leave a review is that we will, if you if you want to throw in a question there or a comment there, we will be taking questions or comments that we'll bring up in the show. So for instance, today we are going to discuss some incoming fan mail, if you will. I got a, a, at least two uh, comments from reviews on iTunes and one from a DM. So we're gonna do we're gonna talk about these things. And then we have a few other things just from our various readings from the week and, and experiences in the week that we've uh, jotted down to talk about. But first of all, Marin, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. My sister is visiting, which is really lovely. Maybe that's kind of contentious. She works with me and we found it's good to be together. So uh, she is quarantined in New York. Wow. Do you ever ch- it's freezing right now. Do you ever chat about God with her? Do you ever chat about God with her? I do. Yeah, definitely. What, she what? goes to a church called, I think, Hillsong in Dallas. She'd been to the same church as my as the rest of my family until quite recently. I think they're they're starting to branch out. Okay. Okay. What what is Hillsong all about? What's their uh We should get some screenshots of their of their content. I mean I feel like I've heard of it. They do like a high, high quality production oh, yeah. value Wait. situation. So it's kind of one of these like new hipster churches. Yeah. It's pretty hipster. Yeah. She, Lindy says that her, her new church is a vibe. That's how she Holy. describes it. Holy smokes. I'm looking at it. Um, and do, do they like it? What do they say about it? I think they, I think they like it. She, she also, it was funny. We were riffing. She, she's listened to chat for God and she was like, I don't know if people who aren't Christian understand that in Bible studies, what you're actually kind of doing is, just sitting <laughs> with people and talking about your feelings <laughs> in a group. Right. <laughs> and a lot of what's happening and it's important. Right. So um, for people who want to see what we're talking about, uh, there, this is Hillsong Church. Jeez. Th- this is one. Of, <laughs> this I'm is like, one of, I hate Joel Austin. I mean, the church is horrifying. And then I'm like, except my sister's church. I mean, Hillsong is obviously really different. <laughs> yeah. This is like this new wave of, kind of like Instagram friendly churches. Yes. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It looks pretty lit. It looks super lit. I'm going to have to make sure I, I'm now I'm concerned I'm messing it up and I'm just remembering that this church is gigantic and I don't remember the name of my, my sisters, but this, this seems, I mean, look at them. They seem nice. That picture. Yeah. They seem nice. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I would go to this at least once. See what it's we like. Interview my sister. That'd be fun. Ooh. I wonder if I, she did. I 
I'm skeptical, but as a, as a good Catholic, I, I, I fear that, I fear that Satanism is running through the blood of this church, but I don't know. I have an open mind. I've never been, I won't judge. I do not know. Satan just serpenting around on the floors, crawling between people's feet in this huge concert arena. We really should vlog attending different churches. I think it would be like verging on sacrilegious. Like we'd need to. No, be we would be careful. no. We, we we would do it in a good spirit of love and openness and and exploration. But if it turned out to be satanic, we would be we'd have to we'd have to report that. We'd have to report. Yeah, <laughs> we could just have a like a questionnaire at the end. Like how satanic do you think that this vlog was? <laughs> like. Seven. In fact, you're already bringing up the basically the first topic. We have a que- we had a, a question from a listener, which we want to bring onto the show and discuss this question. So the question is, let me uh, bring it up here. Where are you? So the question is, hey, Justin, just wanted to say loving chat for God. Thank you. <laughs> Love to hear it at the gym since it's not overly dense, but isn't some passive brain dead noise that just fills up space. You're right. Thank you very much. Good. I appreciate that. Uh, now the question is, I just wanted to see if you could do an episode on what you both think about the nature of sin and what you consider satanic mm. to mean. What does satanic mean? I hope you consider it. See you around. Well, guess what? I have good news for you. We are considering it. Not only are we considering it, but it's on the show. So Marin, please disclose to us what is the nature of sin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I both want to say it's incredibly awesome to get to talk about the nature of sin. And I want to disclaimer that we have no idea. <laughs> like at some, at some level, I think what, what I love about this space is that we are, we are grappling with the nature of, of sin all the time. Um, hmm, I know exactly what, what it is. What'd you say? I know exactly what it is. I mean, maybe you should, I should have read, I should have read the comment and asked you then. Okay. So I am a Catholic. So this is somewhat like heretical to Catholicism, but I don't think it is as much as people think it is. I think there's a way to square the circle here, but I've always been very partial to Spinoza's conception of evil, which, and this is, it's actually a pretty calm. It's a long running kind of theory within, within Christianity in some sense. And, uh, Chris Spinoza is of course not a Christian, but uh, a good pull. I'm excited. His his essential his essential perspective is I think um, you know been articulated by other people in, in history from a Christian perspective and the basic idea is that evil is just the absence of 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 power and capacity so there's this kind of common idea that you know power is evil and you know um, if you have too much power you become abusive and corrupt and evil and this is so this is a somewhat contrarian view that says. Evil is just what happens when you have completely lost your ability to act on the world. Mm. So for Spinoza, Mm. the capacity to do things is associated Mm -hmm. with the emotion of joy. And basically, Mm -hmm. we feel joy when we feel our power increasing, essentially. But notice, it's not power over people. It's more like power to. In the French, there's this Mm -hmm. distinction between uh, pouvoir and puissance and uh we're talking here, pouvoir is the bad one. And by the way, this is kind of what Simone Weil talks about as force. Mm-hmm. So Simone Weil talks a lot about this concept of force. Uh, when she's talking about force, she's talking about uh, pouvoir, which is basically power over things, power to control, right? And there's this other connotation uh, that involves much more about one's own capacity to, to flourish, basically. And mm-hmm. that's puissance. And so what 
Spinoza says is that basically when you have lost your capacity to flourish, that is what evil is essentially. It's just the absence. It's like the absence of capacity essentially. And yeah, it's a bit contrarian because it's not what, what a lot of people think. And a lot of people think that if you just are meek and have little power, then, you know, you're innocent and the, the powerful are, are, are the evil. And Spinoza says no. And I, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of truth to that. So I think that so long as you are optimizing for your own kind of authentic, joyful life forces, then you don't really have to worry too much about evil. You're going to you're going to go in the direction of the good. And that sin, therefore, is sin is basically whenever you're doing things that contribute to the decreasing of your own potential and 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 joyous joyous life force, if you will. It's kind of a corny phrase. I don't know why I'm saying that. But I don't know where I got that mm. particular phrase from. But uh, yeah, it's something like that. So that so to me, again, this kind of like turns on its head what a lot of people think about Christianity because a lot of people think of Christianity as like, oh, it's this like very dour system of rules and constraints that makes you feel guilty all the time. And, you know, you're constantly policing yourself from what you really want to be doing. But I don't think that at all. I think it's the opposite. It's basically Christianity provides these basic guidelines and yes, tells you to not do certain things, but the only things it tells you not to do are the things that is that are going to hurt you also, that are going to sap you and destroy you as well. So take if you take the the Genesis story and the, the famous, you know, mm-hmm. story of Adam and Eve, right? Being uh, you know, expelled from the Garden of Eden because they ate the forbidden fruit. You know, what a lot of people interpret that story as is they think, oh, okay, so the tree represents knowledge and you're not supposed to pursue knowledge under Christianity. You're supposed to live in this stupid little bubble where all you care about is superstitions. And if you try to figure out the truth, you're evil. Um, and you know, that, that, that's, what's forbidden is, is knowledge. And if you, if you try to get knowledge, you're, you're, you're sinful. That's not it at all. What, what Spinoza says about the, the Adam and Eve story. And what I tend to like also what I subscribe to is that God said, don't eat this apple. Cause it's poisoned and it's going to fuck you up. If you eat this apple, just don't eat it. You don't want to eat it. It's not like this is a great apple and I'm going to arbitrarily set a rule that says you're not allowed to eat it. That's so stupid. That's like what people think, but that's not it. It's the apple was poisoned. So God says, don't eat the apple. You have everything you need. You're good. Mm -hmm. You're all set. Enjoy this beautiful garden I've built for you. Uh, That apple over there on that tree, it's poisoned. So don't fuck with it. And you'll be, you're best off, you know? And then, of course, stupid Adam uh, goes and eats the apple. It, that's not sinful because it's like uh, breaking some arbitrary rule that God imposed. It's sinful because it's stupid. It's sinful because it's self-destructive to eat the apple. So that's my take is that, you know, our gen- our personal preferences and what we what we personally want to optimize for, if given a kind of free reign to do so, is perfectly consistent with the strictures on sin and the Ten Commandments and all of that. So sin is just basically whenever you do something that is, you know, um, self, self-destructive essentially. And that, yeah, I'm kind of lecturing at this point, but take it away, Marin. You, you, no, I love it. You, I've, I, we've found, we've found one of your, one of your like maybe soap boxes. I don't want to go so far as to accuse you of that, it's, but it's great. Uh, interesting. There are so many, there are so many things to riff on here. Hmm. My, my concept of sin and what is satanic is usually about separation from god mm-hmm. i really love this point about power i think 
more modern psychological conceptions of what it means to live well are people people refer to the idea of agency a lot and how important it is at the individual level to feel agency and to always feel responsible to finding your own agency what can you do in this case and to orient yourself around that and to choose to act from an agentic place i think um simone they refers a lot to the idea of liberty and the importance that we create societies in which people's liberties are meaningful, right? That they have agency to make decisions which are in fact meaningful to them. And in, in some sense, one could say powerful, right? At some level. I think that I think the interesting question for me is that it seems very clear that at the level of the individual, you are always responsible for finding your agency no matter what, in all cases. You could be constricted every limb of your body without food and your responsibility would still be to to find agency and to find solace in in whatever it was that you still had the capacity to to do and slash however at the societal level we have somewhat of a different question perhaps to ask which is what does it mean to be oppressed what does it mean to have meaningful liberties meaningful agency agency of the sort and liberty of the sort that Simone Vai they talks about in the need for roots, which we were talking about last time and have, have kind of continued to read in background. And I think the reality is that there are some material conditions, for example, that she advocates that, that we have a responsibility, a baseline obligation to provide people. And that seems like a tension sometimes. Like some people, some people care more about operating at the level of individual agency and the expectation that a good society will be formed by really advocating for for that individual agency. And some people really rotate towards the kind of organizational societal uh, level of agency. And then when you think about evil and what is sinful or satanic, obviously that that fits in here quite a lot. Yeah, totally. I I think so too. What do you think about the, uh, what do you think about this idea that's kind um, kind of also embedded in the question where, wonders about the relationship between sin and Satanism. Mm-hmm. What do you think is satanic? I think that things that are satanic are kind of willfully separate from God. Uh-huh. Like the premise underlying the theory or the action is not mm-hmm. in pursuit of a connection, which is basically a deference or a submission or a humility to the, to the infinite, which you cannot control. Right, like Satan is classic case of there's God I want to destroy <laughs> so that I can have power, so that I can overcome this thing, which of course is not overcomable, which is right. you know, you could you could think of as a you know, God in the Christian sense, you could you could just say is like the basic nature of reality, right? And once you have sort of refused to acknowledge your own constraint and finiteness, you have made it impossible to have a relationship with God anymore, to have an absolute, to be made small next to. And you start to act maybe on the basis of pure knowledge or something, right? Like pure self-creative knowledge and and the foundational premise is broken. And so everything, everything that you do from that place um, is, is essentially satanic at some level. Yeah, I agree with that a lot. I mean, I think we're kind of converging on a perspective here in that, you know, you were initially saying that sin is separation from God. And I was saying that it's kind of the absence of one's own capacity. And those two are probably very, 
very much the same in certain ways. And thinking about what what is satanic, I mean, I, I mean, obviously for people listening, I'm no theologian, so I, I'm not like trying to give you. Uh, I sound. am so just yeah, listen I mean, to me. Don't, yeah, <laughs> don't 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 try to learn about the actual Bible and stuff like that from me. But um, I the way I think about Satanism in today's world, where I think Satanism is most clear is basically, and I think this jives with what you're saying is there are a lot of people out there and today, especially in public culture, like on the internet and beyond who actively say things and do things that are trying to fuck you up <laughs> basically. And uh, you know, people, and it's often people who have problems in their own life, preach things that they s- might consciously might unconsciously uh, know to be essentially trying to like bring other people down to their sad, resentful level. Mm. And I think resentment is a, is a really key concept here. I think sin, Satanism, uh, if, if there's kind of one watchword or tell or indicator is, is, is resentment. I think resentment mm-hmm. is kind of the key, mm-hmm. the key observable here. Um, people have that fa- people who have fallen into lives of sin, uh, or who have succumbed to Satan are almost always marked by, by, by resentment. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think there is a real thing today where if your life was fucked up in some bad way and you're struggling and maybe you've you've turned against God and you basically kind of hate existence. And I think there are a lot of people who hate existence. Then you start saying things and talking to other people and promoting images and promoting messages that are kind of purposely geared to fuck up other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And you feel like that's going to make you better or something like that. To me, that's, that's where Satanism is like a real thing. I think a lot of people who use the word Satanism today you know, they're like kind of weirdo conspiracy theorists or whatever. Like, you know, people think there's like some kind of satanic cabal has like infiltrated the U S government. And it's not like so explicit. Um, but I do think Satanism is real. And I think it's basically just resentful people trying to more or less give bad advice to other people to make their lives shitty so that they feel better. I think, I think there is a ton of that right now. And, and to me, that's the easiest way of understanding Satanism. That's how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this connects again to Simone Vi. She talks about rootedness a lot. And when I hear you talk about how resentful people are trying to bring other people to their experience, I mean, she says very much the same thing about rootedness. In, in particular, she refers to how people who are uprooted are the folks who tried to bring uprootedness to other people. I'm trying to find that. Yeah, that's right. She she totally says that. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And uprootedness is a great word for that because this is what like contemporary educated cosmopolitan people are. <laughs> uprooted is, is, the, is a great word for it. You know, it's like if you're 30 years old and you don't have, you know, let, let's say you're 30 years old and you have, you know, like a master's degree or something and you're like successful, you have a high income and you're living in some big city, but you don't live near your parents, you don't have a spouse, you don't have kids, and you also don't really have like a a, a meaningful purpose in your life in terms of like the deeper mm-hmm. reason for your 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 work and your effort that you see your life is culminating into. Mm-hmm. You are uprooted. You you are very uprooted. And that type of person, if they don't turn to God, will generally turn towards promoting ideologies and ideas to other people that will basically just make them more uprooted. Uh, there's definitely this kind of contagious cult of uprootedness where people who are fundamentally unrooted or uprooted, uh, they want to destroy other people who are rooted. And I, I, I think that's like very scary and, and very perverse. 
Yeah, I found I found a quote that I'll read off here. She says, uprootedness is by far the most dangerous malady to which human societies are exposed, for it is a self-propagating one. For people who are really uprooted there remain only, oh, for, for people who are really uprooted, there remain only two possible sorts of behavior, either to fall into a spiritual lethargy, remember, resembling death, like the majority of the slaves in the days of the Roman Empire, or to hurl themselves into some form of activity necessarily designed to uproot, often by the most violent methods, those who are not yet uprooted, or only partly so. Yeah, that's so on point. I mean, I think that this is like a very good way to understand the culture wars right now. Not all of mm -hmm. them, but there is a, a notable contingent of people who I think are very uprooted. They have a deep inner awareness that their life is really not how life is supposed to be, that they're missing a lot of crucial ingredients to a whole mm -hmm. and good life. And they don't really know exactly what's wrong, but they know on some level that they've that they've 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 failed to procure for themselves certain aspects of a true good life and their way of dealing with this is essentially to preach everything they do as if it reliably produces a good life when they kind of know that it doesn't but they kind of hope that if they can just basically spread their uprootedness then somehow like everyone will be a little bit better off or something like that at least that's what they tell themselves and yeah, I think it's extremely evil. I think you see it especially with like anti-family stuff. To me, that's like the, the most obvious example is like on the radical left now, it's pretty popular to be to be against the family as such, which is just so, so insane to me. It's like for, for a couple of years, people were talking about prison abolition. This was like a, a really hot concept in like radical left academic theory. Okay, and then I'm kind of like, okay, I, I get it. That's cool. Prisons suck. Um, I would love a world with no prisons. All right, abolish prisons. Sounds good. I'm with it. Then the next year, they're like, all right, now we're talking about family abolition. This is like a concept in, in, in radical left academic theory. Family abolition. This is like a hot theme. And I'm like, okay, you're, you, you're losing me there. <laughs> like, but totally not. Um, and, but the, yeah, I don't know. I find, I, I think that's like where, where you can really see Satanism t today, personally. What, what, what do you think? Do you, mm -hmm. Can you think of examples or like, how do you, how do you see this manifesting? Yeah, no, it resonates deeply. I, I think the thing that I keep coming back to is how much of a broodedness is about society or community, right? And your, your sense of belonging to a community that grounds you. And we think through time, there are so many societies that became satanic in some at some level or another, right? There are many, there are many societies that God destroyed because they were no longer in service of of God's will. And I think that when I look at that, I don't see as much there is there is the lack of agency and the lack of liberty at the level of the individual. And the individual does need to be held responsible to finding that agency and to not perpetuating whatever sinfulness th they have inherited. And there's the practical reality of a community which supports some ways of living, which can be satanic or uprooted, right? And pursue uprooting other people. And I think that uh, that that's just a really hard, that's a really hard balance to strike. And maybe, maybe this is, this is probably like some of the nature of our I don't, I don't know everything about our political differences, but I see, I see a very important responsibility to being creating com community and rootedness in community so that people can live lives effortlessly and agentically, which are 
nourishing and serve serve God in in some way, right? Heck yeah. I'm with that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I just think it's a little, I think it's, we're, we're living in terrifying times where what Simone Weil describes as uprootedness mm-hmm. is by far the most fashionable way of thinking and acting. It's like, it's, it's really dominant. Uh, and it's like pretty much everything that we see as cool and attractive in our society is, is up, tends to be uprooted and everything that we see as backwards and, mm-hmm. you know, provincial is, is rooted basically. Why? And what is your explanation for why that is? So on some level, I think it's uh, kind of historical invariant, but like that's kind of, it's kind of always been the case in some ways, right? Like what is sexy and attractive and cool uh, it is always been, you know, what's edgy and what's, what kind of goes away from, from the, from the norm and from, from the, the, the stable traditional base. So in some way I see that as, as, as a kind of just a fact of youth culture, really. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like the youth, what's sexy and appealing and hot is always kind of correlated with youth, youth culture and youth culture is always about a rebellion from, from the, from the parents. Right. Uh, on some level, that's, that's what's really going on uh, underneath on, on some kind of structural level. But I think what you're seeing now today is the unleashing of this to a proportion we've never seen in part because people don't have to grow up anymore. So like people in their thirties now are like what people used to be in their twenties. Um, you know, it's funny. Like I, the other day I, I ran into a guy down the street. He was uh, outside of his house. He's about my age, looked like it, you know, middle thirties or whatever. And he was with his buddy and uh, he was, uh, they were outside in the street because they were looking, he has a, he has a house like being built or whatever. And they were checking on the house being built. They were just like on their bikes basically. And, uh, I, you know, I'm a friendly dude. I just kind of said, what's up. I lived down the street, introduced myself, chatted to these guys for a little bit. And we're like, here we are. We're like, th- we're middle-aged, we're like basically middle-aged guys, right? We're in our middle, middle of our thirties, but they're both on their bikes and we're shooting the shit in the street. I like, I was like, I would have done when I was 14. I felt like I was like, mm-hmm. I, I like meeting like skateboarder buddies when I was 14. It was, it was mm-hmm. like very similar vibe to that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have like, uh, kids walking by me, right. I'm not like taking, I'm not like uh, taking my kids to the park. Right. I'm not. And these, these are two young, young guys, uh, young, young middle-aged men on their bikes basically. And, and it's just like, it was kind of a funny moment. Cause it made me feel like, yeah, you know, people say this, it's, it's common to say actually that, that the people in their thirties now are just like kids in their twenties. And mm-hmm. and it's, it's really true, right? Like we don't have kids, we don't have families. Um, and we like ride our bikes around, uh, you know, like having fun. <laughs> so it's like, um, yeah, I, I forgot where I was going with that particular anecdote, but, um, oh, right. Just basically saying that Ridiculous. this uprootedness is now, it's like all limits have been removed, right? So it's like youth culture was always this kind of uprooted kind of sinful, uh, you know, uh, deviance, but now it's like, you can do that into your thirties, into your forties. And you can also like write opinion pieces in the New York times that says like, this is totally good and normal. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. like, and, and people like that and, yeah. and think it's real. Yeah. Um, yeah. to me that that's what, so yeah, your question was like, what caused that or whatever to me that that's, what's kind of unique is there's this, uh, genuine liberation and extension of, of this problem to un, unprecedented proportions. And I think what's caused it is it's a good question. What's caused it. But my, my hunch is, uh, it's all downstream of the Protestant revolution basically. So <laughs> once, you know, once, once Luther, you know, pinned those theses to the wall yeah. and said, Freaking Hey, Luther. you know, 
we get we get to we get to decide for ourselves uh, what the rules are. Yeah, what we're seeing now is is kind of uh, all foreordained in that initial rebellion from the Catholic Church, frankly. So if we all just if we all just submitted to the Catholic Church, this wouldn't have happened. What do you think? <laughs> I am super jazzed to to take take that all the way back. I think that the things that I'm the things that I'm hearing the distinction that Simone Vi they Simone Vey makes on on liberty is the idea of meaningful liberty, right? Agency to do things which are in fact going to really add value to you. And I think liberalism as a bigger mega trend is giving you liberty to do things which aren't actually that valuable to you. It's like liberty to do things immediately, liberty to press a button right now, <laughs> which will bring you some iota of happiness in the moment. And I think that as we've paved the world with these really tight feedback loops to all of our behavior and made all of these small happinesses really easy to, to get, we've sort of distorted and distracted ourselves from the version of liberty, which was meaningful, which is actually about the capacity to make commitments and to be rooted and a community which enforces that way of being and behaving in, in, in that group of people. And I do think that, I mean, that which you've done to the, the least of my brothers, you, you've done to me. I do think that community itself is the, is the basin in which we experience God, right? It's, we, we, we experience and have Christ-like relationships in our interactions with each other. And as we are instead so often encouraged to just do things for ourselves really quickly and immediately and have these transactions, which are, which are incredibly serving of who, who we are, uh, we, we lose, we lose touch with that. And that's very much what I think the story of our past hundred years at least has, has been. One thing that I thought of when you were talking earlier is, uh, have you read Theology of Liberation? Uh, no, I haven't. We should totally read Theology of Liberation at some point. Very so cool. this is... I know of it, of course, but... His name is Gutierrez. A, during, um, I think, the 70s in Latin America, right. he, he wrote this really important and now very influential treatise about how theology had lost its groundedness in the work in the world that is done. And that the early Christian church had been very interested in notions of charity, very care, very much cared for the poor, saw much of much of what was radical about Christ and Christ's life and Christ's work, right? Was it about acceptance of people who were seen as degenerate on the part of most of society and creating an, a, a, a narrative which was inclusive of them as equals and the accountability to living that way and what is very interesting about the theology of liberation is that he he basically says that starting he he points to before protestantism after after the kind of monastic life in which most of scholarship was happening in you know the middle middle ages in these in these monasteries he talks about how oh it was with the rise of the with the rise of the church actually and its own coming to power and its own richness it lost touch with uh, a, a real sense of care for the poor and theology no longer became considerate of the, the boots on ground reality of the poor or of the work that the church is meant to do in the world um, as being about consideration for everyone's circumstance. And that seems connected in some way to me. 
to, to everything we're saying. Like we do, we do essentially have a responsibility, I think, to making sure that we are creating communities in which you have Christ-like relationships. And of course, at, at the individual level, you always have to take that responsibility. And <laughs> we can either make that collectively very hard because we are uprooted and we, we've now created systems in which we're actually just trying to uproot each other for our individual gain and and kind of destroying the fabric of society, or we can we can figure out how to have rootedness be at the center of things. A, a thought I had reading uh, reading the Need for Roots is how might we possibly measure progress against the idea of rootedness? You know, so many people are concerned with what progress in society means, and I do think that there's obviously a lot of progress made on material grounds that is incredibly important. But I don't. I don't see anyone really advocating for conceptions of progress, which are about people's lived experience of rootedness in a community, of having narratives about heroism that are accessible to them, of having you know notions of, of ways they can live, which are, in, it, I don't care if, really if it's in service of, of God as such, or, or just like the idea of um, you know being able to live in a way that is honorable, which Simone talks about honor quite a bit as well and the necessity of being able to live in ways which are which are honorable to oneself well i think this is because progress is deeply in bed with uprootedness unfortunately i think system maybe there's a way to square that but i think that's the problem basically is that well if you think about it at the at the very core of progress is a kind of leaving behind that which was there right so you know what really uproots mm-hmm. kind of pre-modern uh, traditional social anchors. It's like at the very beginning of capitalism, when people start going to the big towns, right. To seek opportunity, to seek, you know, uh, greater wealth, right. All of that, like all of that stuff, which is great on some level, which is, you know, the increasing improvement of, of humankind and our material existence is also the seed of, of, of everything that's wrong in, in, on some level also, so it's a, it's it's definitely an honorable it's it's a worthy and honorable uh, kind of question and goal right like how can you you know is there a way is there a way to save the sense of progress and the and the motivation for an increasingly you know improving society without being um, uprooted but I think that kind of answers your question about why that's why that's difficult yeah right she- because like to really be rooted you kind of have to give up on progress right like. Um, in some, in some ways, don't you? Isn't, isn't that kind of like the radical challenge of being rooted is, is to relinquish the, the, the extension and, and, and the accumulation and the, and the pursuit of, of, of the greater and the better in favor of, you know, being there with and for that, which already is, and that, which is worse than you. And right. So it's like, why do we, yeah. 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 And I think conservatism at some level, right. Is, a concern that we're going to move so quickly towards progress that we're going to erode rootedness, right? Conservatism in its true ideal form as a way of being is about a concern that we're going to move too quickly, which I think is legitimate. (laughs) I think legitimate and underspoken about. One thing that she talks about a lot as well is how rootedness is about sitting between a respect for the past and then a conception of 
kind of human destiny or a notion of the future that we're working towards. And destiny is a really contentious idea, right? The, the, the notion that there is necessarily some destiny which humanity is, is pursuing is very uh, Marxist <laughs> um, or, you know, talks, talks as if there's some like final, final end in mind that, that can, uh, that can motivate our behavior. We, and we should totally talk about that at some other point in this, in this podcast. But I really, I've come to really enjoy recently that idea of the relationship that you have with the past and the future as actually being very important to both rootedness and to, I think, knowing how to live. A very pragmatic thinker who I've mentioned before, a guy named Richard Rorty, really loves Dewey and in particular loved Dewey's function of philosophy or concept of the function of philosophy. And I I keep thinking back to it, so I'm going to read it really quickly. Uh, He says, Dewey said that the function of philosophy is to mediate between old ways of speaking developed to accomplish earlier tasks with new ways of speaking developed in response to new demands. As he put it, when it is acknowledged that under disguise of dealing with ultimate reality, what we're talking about, Justin, (laughs) when it is acknowledged that under disguise of dealing with ultimate reality, philosophy has been occupied with the precious values embedded in social traditions, that it has sprung from a clash of social ends and from a conflict of inherited institutions with incompatible contemporary tendencies. It will be seen that the task of future philosophy is to clarify men's ideas as to the social and moral strifes of their own day. And I, I really, uh, I resonate a lot with, with the idea that the task of philosophy and the task of, I think, theology and the conversations that, that we're having and is, is about reconciling ourselves to a past and, and, and a future without kind of, um, while understanding that things are moving in progress and because our values are realized in our communities, in our way of engaging and in, in our senses of rootedness, that that's constantly needing to be rearticulated. And I think we should move only so quickly as we can maintain sufficient rootedness that we don't accidentally kind of destroy ourselves um, at some I level. I like that. Nice. I like that. See, I kind of like a mental model where it's like you want to almost withdraw from time altogether. You want to – when I I get this kind of from Simone Weil. It's like uh, not explicitly, but it's just something I, I, I personally feel reading her. It's like – I feel like the true Christian, the truly good person is always at all times operating in this kind of weird netherworld where it's like there's neither future nor past and all of, you know, history, you know, with the capital H, it, it kind of recedes and everything becomes eternal in, in an ideally, you know, when you're when you're really like living at your best. Mm-hmm. She talks about actually how history is this kind of stage or theater in which we generally worship uh, really bad people. <laughs> and I, I think this is a really interesting take. So she talks about Hitler, for instance, and she's like, she basically says, Hitler is what you get when you have a society that defines greatness as conquest and accomplishment in history with a capital H basically. And it mm-hmm. makes total sense when you think about it. Like mm-hmm. we do value anything in history that was strong and powerful basically mm-hmm. uh, because those mm-hmm. are the people who write the history books. And so what she says is basically with our conception of history and progress, it just our, ba- our most basic sense of the story that is humanity 
we, uh, without even really knowing it, we all worship evil. Yeah. Just by, just by having a kind of shared sense of capital H history and, and, and appreciating and admiring capital H history. That's why we get people like Hitler because Hitler is basically like, I would rather die a supervillain who's done terrible things, but at least be a part of history. Right. He, and, and certainly, you know, Hitler was uh, emphatically a, 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 a major player in history. And I thought, I think that's a really profound way of thinking about it. Cause what she basically says is that, you know, what you should really care about is being a good person. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much means you're never going to be a part of history. You're going to be uh, completely unknown, never remembered. You're not going to accomplish anything in particular. You're going to basically give your life to loving and caring for uh, people who need love and care and uh, being like very in the background, pretty much like a truly good person will generally be in the background and generally not noticed. And yeah, I think, that, and, and and so if you're really committing to be a good, being a good person, you're kind of committing to exit the stage and the theater mm-hmm. of human history in, in some ways. And that's pretty profound. It's a pretty profound challenge. It's, it's a really difficult challenge because most of us who are ambitious and have, you know, ideas and want to accomplish things and want to improve the world, this drive to improve the world, the world is very often uh, a drive to actually worship and in our own weird ways, kind of participate in these like evil economies of, of force and power and domination. Yeah, no, I, I love that and agree with it in that any given community in time is not necessarily living for good things and achieving power in that community is not, is not necessarily accomplishing good ends. And I think that that's what pragmatism loses. And I think that's what a lot of conceptions of progress lose just because you can track engagement or measure some metric moving doesn't mean that you're making progress in a way, which is sort of in, in, you know, a worthy, a worthy, uh, a worthy liberty, a, a meaningful liberty, a meaningful sacrifice. Um, we have never spoken, by the way, about about worthy sacrifice. But one thing that one thing that I think is really interesting and important is that God asks for certain kinds of sacrifices of us. Right? You couldn't just like do anything, right? Agentically, like, hey, I decided to give you a shoe, you know, and this is going to like work, right? You're going to you're just going to accept whatever I have to give you. There were a lot of prescriptions about what it means to submit a, a, a sacrifice, which is in fact like worthy in God's eyes and glorifying to to God. And I think that I think that when we design societies, when we design communities, when we think about rootedness or our own action, it is it begs the question, you know, are, is this, is this sacrifice that you're making? Is this work that you're doing actually like in service of some greater, greater good or not? Uh, And Mm -hmm. that obviously connects to what is satanic or, or sinful. Um, So I completely agree that we live in a society, which is very obsessed with the idea that power qua power is like as good as it gets kind of like, if you've, if you've, you know, achieved you've you've succeeded um and and necessarily the repercussion of that will invisible hand trickle down and everyone else will also have their have their respective lives improved um which i'm i'm more skeptical of but i also i also think that withdrawing your responsibility to society lets society become uprooted right like if you actually just say i'm not going to participate on the ground here 
do you how does how does society improve how does it become easier for people to live in ways that are glorifying right. or meaningful right well that's the hard problem yeah but i think there i think the the christian ethic that i see and not that i necessarily practice but that i see and kind of would like to practice more but i don't at all which is basically it's like you contribute to progress in the world by doing all the little weird things that are unrewarded and unseen and generally undervalued by like satanic modern society, basically. So it's like you can, and and in that way you can, you can contribute a lot, right? You can actually really move the world forward in a sense and do a lot of good for the world, but you're mostly kind of operating behind the scenes, doing little weird things for different people that generally no one else gives any credit to. <laughs> uh, I think that that's, that would be that'd be one possible answer, but mm-hmm. that what, with all the ways we consider great and uh, all the mechanisms and modes of activity that we consider to be oh changing the world are often uh, red herrings, basically. Mm-hmm. But what about like Paul? Right, there are a lot of people wh- whom God calls into a kind of spiritual leadership, which is necessary to save His people. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough. I mean, tell me more. I, I, I'm not sure. I guess if we behave in ways that we're, so in my head, we're here on earth for some reason, right? We're here to glorify God. And, th- and this function is in fact important. There, there are other ways this could have been. We're here in the material away from God frequently <laughs> uh, in, to, to, to glorify his, his purpose. And so there is something material and historical and in time and bounded, which is essentially important to our, to the nature of our relationship with God. And so I think oftentimes when we abdicate responsibility to the material, to the person at our doorstep who's starving, right? We, we have missed, we've missed one of the premises, right? Which is like, we are here in this material world as these human things which are apart from god and we're doing we're doing god's work here now um and so i I do think i do think that i do think that i mean you look at um this is one of the qualms i have with with buddhism for example right the idea of kind of sitting and achieving this connection to god and that being the the thing the thing in service is i've i've never been able to to resonate with totally boring Sorry. Yeah, boring. Yeah, you don't get to do anything. I'm just not about sitting. I'm just not a sitter. I'm more of a doer. <laughs> totally. Totally. I hear that. Yeah, no. And I mean, honestly, like not to not to talk you up too much or anything, but I feel like you kind of do actually live this Christian ethic I'm talking about because you do a lot of things. I mean, you you like you work hard and you're very successful and you and you I mean you move like you're moving huge sums of capital. Like you're really allocating uh energy in pretty profound and ambitious ways in your own way. You definitely are having a major impact on uh, what gets done in the world, but you're not like famous really. And you're certainly not, you know, you're certainly not the type of person who like hogs the limelight. You're not like a, you know, a lot of people don't, don't even, you know, necessarily people watching this or listening to the podcast, people don't even know what you do really. And I I think this is a kind of in, you know, one way of, of understanding it is like, yeah, in your own life, like you try to do what you can to change the world to make it better, but you're not seeking glory necessarily, or you're not seeking fame or or personal riches so much as, and, and you're quite content to pretty much do like a lot of labor that pretty much no one sees and no one cares about. 
I think mm-hmm. that I think that's you know it's kind of mundane, but I think that is kind of what uh what a what a good like Christian work ethic will look like, maybe. Yeah, I mean, number one, that's very flattering uh, and undeserved. But number two, I actually think that it's more complicated than that. In that, I I have a lot of Protestant notions of not seeking limelight, etc. Many of which I don't know are in fact in service of my mission. I'm afraid of putting myself too much in the limelight. I'm afraid of being egotistical. I'm afraid of the prospect of being satanic in some way. And I think a thing I'm actively working towards actually, that's very much on my mind now is having a secure and authentic enough relationship with my sense of duty mission, serving God, serving what is good and bringing worthy sacrifices such that any promotion that I do of myself is not about myself, right? It's about, it's about a, a, an end that I understand is bigger than me or my own self glorification. There's a, a professor who I really like. She works at, uh, gosh, is it St. Jude? Some small, some small liberal arts college. Her name is Zena. Uh, and she was doing an interview the other day with Agnes Callard, a philosopher. And Agnes was asking her, she's promoting a book and all this stuff about living the, a, a contemplative intellectual life and how she was able to do that work, how she was able to do that kind of promotional work, which is so orthogonal to what it means to like live, you know, live the kind of life where you're pursuing truth for its own sake and learning for, for its own sake. And she responded that the, the reason she doesn't have a lot of anxiety about it is because she knows what she's doing it for. She knows that she is sort of a vessel in the world, which has some amount of status, some amount of competency that she can spend to serve something greater than that. And it's very tricky. It's very tricky to make sure that you're actually towing that line, right? It's very, very, very hard. It's easy for us to kind of point to ourselves and think that we're like so great. Um, But that is the model that is what true, I think, spiritual leadership looks like and requires. Totally. Yeah, no, I hear that. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's like one of the, yeah, that's one of the cool things about being a Christian is that you can basically just kind of like offload that to say like, it's not me, it's God. I'm doing this to the greater glory of God, not for that's me. Really cool God. You're like, I but, mean, I'm Christian, so it's definitely not about me, obviously, but I would love to be in your magazine. <laughs> right. No, but you know what I mean? It's like, I think, yeah. I think if you when and when as a Christian, you can work really hard and accomplish a lot of badass stuff and and basically just always say, Oh yeah, don't give me credit for that. Give God credit for that, and you're good, basically. Uh if you don't have if you don't have God or you don't believe in God or if you're you're not a Christian, then it is a bit more of a puzzle, right? Uh, because who are you thanking? Who really gets the credit? And you can say you're just a vessel, but a vessel mm. for what exactly? It's kind of, you know, you kind of kick that can down the road and you kind of leave that as a question mark, which I understand also, but no. should and we? Have- good, there are so many stories of this, right? Isaac, God, God has given people many gifts and then asked them to give them back to him. Right? Mm. And you, you are actually living in service of God. If you understand that those gifts were never yours, that you never, you never actually earned them they were all given to you as gifts by God's grace because he trusted you with the gift. Right. And only in so far as you're willing to give it back, 
um, only insofar as you always remember that it was never yours. Can you can you continue to act in service of of that greater? Heck yeah, good? I love that. Well put. Should we in the in the last few minutes maybe let's tackle let's throw onto the agenda this other question we got from a fan. This is from uh, a review that was just left on iTunes. Thank you very much for the reviews, people. Keep them coming. I put a link in the show notes. So if you want to leave a review and let us know how you think the show is going, we would love to hear it. And we will mention it on the podcast and we'll talk about it, especially if you put a question in there. So here's a question from Jonah Redwood. And the question is, after saying very nice things, thank you very much, Jonah. Uh, the question is, Marin and Justin, where is the line that separates a desire for something good and healthy from idolatry? Especially curious to hear this discussed in the context of romantic relationships or the desire for one. Many young people I know struggle with this and they add, it seems there's an overlap between such idolatry and the incel phenomenon. In my personal experience, these guys aren't responding to rejection as if it came from humans, but as if it came from God. I think this is a great intuition kind of packed into this question. I totally see where Jonah is going with this. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think, you know, the opinions of other human beings should not feel so important to you if you have a correctly and accurately calibrated sense of 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 your place in the universe, uh, especially in relation to God. You know, um, a girl dismissing your advances should not really pierce so deeply into the soul if one understands that we are all but you know tiny specks of dust in in the eyes of God and or or compared to god uh so i do think there i i think my instinct personally i'd love to hear what you think marin my mm -hmm. my initial impression is there's a lot of truth to this to the mm -hmm. to the hypothesis embedded in this question i i do think that people are way more socially sensitive because they are so separate from god uh because they don't believe in god because they're not anchored to the true anchor of all that exists, they are effectively, they treat social opinion as God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be, to be, you know, sexually rejected by women is like being, you know, sent to hell by God or something like that. I, I, I do think something like that might be, might be the case. What do you think? Ooh, it's such a good question. I, I wish we had another hour just to talk about, about. Yeah, we this. could also pick it up later or whatever, but, uh, just thought I'd squeeze it on here before we, this will be our yeah, last podcast. A very, a very good one. Um, hmm. So going back to what I mentioned earlier about the necessity of the material, right? We, we were allowed by God to fall. That was the first thing that happened essentially, right? We were, we were created, we fell and we fell in a way that God knew was going to happen. And, our lives and our material experiences are sort of made to serve God and to acknowledge our own finiteness and the implausibility of our perfectly articulating goodness and evil and, you know, becoming, becoming bigger than, than God at some level. Um, I think for me, then the importance of community, the importance of society is connected to just that understanding that, that we were put here, <laughs> like we were put here by God to do to do God's work. And when we end up living in societies that tell us that we are not worthy constantly, it is understandably frustrating 
right? Like our, our material condition, our community is supposed to be the place that we interact with God at some level, right? There, there, is a, there is a mediator between God and us. There is a Christ figure, right? Who was put on the, on the wor- world in human form for us to be able to grapple with in, in a way that we could, we could understand and, inter- and, and engage with and, and, you know, uh, and be saved by, right? I think un, un, one of the most beautiful things to me is that the, this salvation character for us, this, the salvific figure was fully man and, and fully God. Uh, and, and that did not have to be the case. Um, I think it's important. So the thing I'll say is insofar as our rejections in the material sense or sexual sense feel to us to be, um, you know, easy, easy to conflate with some essential rejection. I think that makes sense. I think we're, I think we are essentially material and, our, our material conditions, our society, what, what our society says we should value in ourselves is very real (laughs) to us. Um, and so I sympathize a lot with this struggle and it makes it harder to have a a relationship with God in a world like this, which is why God has killed off many societies (laughs) in time, which weren't able to sustainably and collectively serve serve his purpose. So that's, that's not really a great response. I think, I think it's such a, it's such a meaningful question. Um, all, all I'll say again is at the level of the individual, you know, your agency has to be the foundation of your health and your relationship with God. And you have to, to the best of your ability, no matter what your, what your material circumstances find ways to, to live in service. And I think we have a lot of important work to do at the level of understanding how to create life-giving communities, whatever the life force idea that Justin was talking about earlier, which I think is also really important. Um, and I think we're doing a real bad job at it right now as a society. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's also this question in, in, in the question about idolatry and, mm-hmm. you know, the desire for something good, healthy. So the, the questioner is granting that, you know, what people want are, are yeah. things that it's fair for them to want, but at what point does do kind of earthly desires become kind of obsessions or fixations that, that, yeah. that are essentially kind of putting them in the place of gods. And yes. I mean, my instinct is that this is a very, very widespread, like this is a, this is actually a, a common problem. And I think for a lot of people who are atheists, they do end up worshiping something else that's uh, not even mm-hmm. necessarily conscious to them. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the best things about, you know, being a Christian, I think is that by just kind of, having this concept an entity that you kind of make the center of everything and you give God credit for everything. And you're just like, God, dude, you're the best. You do your everything. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you're the only, you're like, there's one specific thing you worship and that's it. It really has a way of making everything else in the world seem like more chill and like not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably good and healthy. And yeah. So I think, I don't know. I think the, I think the question here is, it's definitely onto something personally, yeah. but maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being too harsh on, no, on, no, the, on, no. on the seculars. Yeah, no, no, no. The, the, the idolatry point is a really great one. I mean, I, th- I think we, I think we turn towards idolatry when we're pursuing security that feels absolute to us, but we don't have healthy enough relationships with the absolute to, to, to have our power rest in, in that thing. 
And it makes, it makes tons of sense. I mean, we're anxious creatures. We're all going to die. It's horrifying. And we know we're going to die. And like every day we're upset with ourselves and upset with other people and lots of stuff sucks all the time. And so I think when we, when we have societies, which are basically idolatrous, which is, these are the societies that God kills, right? The ones that, and it's similar to what we were saying earlier about the nature of our society right now, we find and fixate on these kind of immediate material things to try to absolve us of our essential anxiety and sense of uprootedness. And what we need is to be able to have that security exist in something which is in fact absolute and which is in fact stable. Um, and when we conflate, when we conflate those things out of desperation, we, yeah, we lose, we lose our footing um, and we become very anxious uh, and probably do mean, mean things to, to women and other people that uproot them. Yeah, totally. Totally. We are in a pandemic of uprootedness. The up, up, uprootedness is the real pandemic. COVID is just a cover for the pandemic mm. of uprootedness. Boom. That's my, that's my Christian nice. uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, so, all right, we're coming up on an hour. We like to just do these as our sessions. I wanted to also maybe talk about Carl Jung on dreams. Cause I've been reading a lot of Jung. I'm about to open a, another course and this one will be on Carl Jung. So I've been, I've had my head in, uh, the Carl Jung books. And I never really actually read too much of him. I'm not teaching the course, thankfully, but uh, I've taken it as an opportunity to, to kind of catch up on my on my Carl Jung. And it's some interesting stuff. He was kind of a Christian himself in a certain way, more Christian than Freud for, for sure. And that's part of his beef with Freud. Uh, for, Jung was much more spiritual. And uh, But I, I had some takes in particular on on his theories of dreams because I was kind of impressed by his theory of dreams, I found it much more compelling and convincing actually than some of the other, you know, more Freudian takes on dreams. So I, but I think I'll hold on, I'll hold fire on that. We can, we can talk about that another time. And uh, what do you think, Marin? Should we, and anything else you wanted to get onto the agenda? Well, no, I just want to say, I think that's actually a real, because you're right. Their conflict was about a, a man who was more of a mystic uh, and a man who was very aggressively material all the way to in intensively sexual, right? Um, and that's in, consistent with what we're, we're talking about here in many in many ways. How do you totally. reconcile these so these basic things? Maybe we'll, so maybe we'll talk about that next time. And in the meantime, folks, please go and leave a review on iTunes if you like what we're doing. It really helps other people find the show, so we would appreciate it. And maybe, you know, if you want, there's a link in the show notes so you can find the iTunes page easily. Uh, I would also really appreciate it if it's not too much to ask. If you, if you really like this podcast and you want to see us keep doing it, uh, then we would love to see it grow. So maybe tell a friend if you like it, you know, tell them, tell, share it with your networks or send an email to someone and tell them what you like about what we're doing. And uh, yeah, leave it in a review so we know what you're thinking. And if there's a question in the review, we'll definitely bring it onto the show and talk about it. So um, yeah, if you're on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and click the bell so you hear when we go live next time. And yeah, you can get this on your phone on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So all right, Chat for God podcast. Marin, thank you so much. This was fun as always. And we'll do it again soon, yeah? Yay. All right. Thanks, Marin. I'll see you later. Bye, Bye. everybody. Thanks for hanging out.